0: Today's scripture comes from uh, the book of Job, chapter 11, verses 7 through 12. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy and privilege in sharing with us God's word. Let's pray and ask for the God of heaven and earth to bless us with his word. Father, we ask that you would encourage us now, even in the midst of so much that goes on in our lives, like what is happening with our dear sister Gina. There's so much to which we get discouraged, so much that leads us to disenchantment and eventually leads to disobedience. And so, Father, we pray that you will guard our hearts and cut that evil chain reaction and disrupt it with joy and hope and peace that comes in the knowledge of God and in his love for us. God, we know that you are a God of mercy and grace and power and love. And we need to be reminded of that this morning, especially now, for you are the God of all comfort and you are the God who is in control of all things. And we pray now that you would help us to understand the full measure and weight of who you are in your goodness, in your character in your sovereignty. And so, God, would you now bless us as we sit under your feet and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So, I tell my kids that Santa isn't real. Just like the tooth fairy isn't real, just like, you know, the boogeyman isn't real, just like the Easter bunny isn't real, I have been telling my kids as far as they can remember that Santa isn't real. And for those of you who are uber devout Christians, you might be thinking, good job, pastor. I am so thankful that my pastor doesn't compromise the truth. I'm even more thankful by the fact that you refuse to allow the culture to shove down your children's throats, superstitions, and silly myths that our culture is always propaganding against our children. Good for you. Yeah. Good for me. But I wonder, is it good for my kids? My first son, Judah, currently six, soon to be seven in a couple weeks, has had a particular problem with this. Every year, without doubt, he always comes up to me on Christmas. Daddy, is Santa real? Is Santa real? you got to understand that I've been telling this boy since he was four years old that Santa wasn't real. And sure enough, this past December, he said, Is Santa real? Now, you could imagine how annoyed I was at this little child. I mean, come on. I'm a smart guy, or at least I like to think I am. And I want to even more think that my spawn is as smart as I am. And then I can't help but to wonder, what is wrong with this kid? Why does he accept the truth? When is it going to get through his head that Santa isn't real? And then one day, I read a quote. From a great Christian thinker, long dead by the name of G.K. Chesterton. And soon, my annoyance towards my son transformed to fear for my son. Let me read to you the quote that caused this unsettledness within me. He said this, quote, The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. There are no dreary sights, only dreary sight seers. When I read these words, it finally dawned on me why my son is always asking me, Daddy, is Santa real? And it really has nothing to do with whether or not this man in the North Pole really exists. Actually, what he really wanted to know was if there was such a thing known as wonder. Wonder. In other words, he wanted to know if he could still believe what kids his age instinctively believe. And that is there's something magical about the world that should inspire you to be filled with wonder. And here I was, his father telling him, no, son, there's no nothing magical about the world, right? And there's nothing wonderful about it. Now, for lack of a better word, I couldn't help but wonder what that would do to him. And parents, have you wondered what that would do to your child? We're continuing our sermon series entitled God As He Is. And if this is your first Sunday with us, the whole point of this series is to educate you Christians in here about the God of the Bible as he has written about in the Bible. Why? Well, I'm sure many of you, like I, have many loved ones who don't know Jesus, who don't know the God that you treasure and love. And so one of the ways that I want to equip you as you engage and maybe even educate your people your friends, about who this God that you worship is, is so that you could cut through all the mischaracterizations, all the caricatures that this culture teaches them about God that is absolutely untrue, in the hopes that as you correct their misunderstandings, they would come to also be filled with wonder and love with the God that you are currently in love with and filled with wonder with, at least you should be. And today, we're going to be talking about a certain aspect of God, an attribute, a characteristic of God that is really very relevant to my son Judah, to his father, me, and to every person that walks on the earth. And that is the incomprehensibility of God. I want to talk to you about God being incomprehensible. Okay, And why that is so important for us. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, what the incomprehensibility of God means. Number two, why why we refuse to believe the incomprehensibility of God. And finally, how we can believe the incomprehensibility of God. What it is, why we refuse to believe in it, and how we can finally believe in it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, what the incomprehensibility of God is. Read again with me verse 7 of our passage where it says this. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty Our passage begins with two questions about God. But if you take careful consideration, you'll come to know that this is not really asking a question. These two questions are not really asking a question. But in reality, it's simply making a statement about God in question form. And so here's the question. What is the statement about God that these two questions are tacitly saying? It says it right there in the very first question. That there are deep things of God. There are deep things of God. In other words, God is deep. God is deep. Now, you're thinking to yourself, what does that even mean? Right? What does it mean to say that there are deep things of God or, or, or that God is deep? Well, perhaps a modern cultural idiom that singles tend to you so often today would be helpful in illuminating us. You ever heard this before? Man, that girl, way out of my league. Wow, she is so gorgeous. She's so beautiful. Man, she is way out of my league what i said about my wife of course i got her right but you know what i'm saying right she is way out of my league what do we mean when we say that about a person right well it would be helpful to know that the word league other than meaning association like the national football league or the major leagues also means a unit of length like twenty thousand leagues under the sea which by the way is a fantastic book if you haven't read it right the word um the word league is a reference for depth or deepness Okay, So when we say that a person is out of our league, we would say, man, I am so unevenly matched to that person that I cannot stand up to the person, toe-to-toe, peer-to-peer, face-to-face. Because if I attempted to do so, it would be just as foolish as trying to stand up in the middle of the ocean deeps. I would just get overwhelmed. I would just get consumed. I would just... Drowned. i'm out of my depth with this person now when you apply this to this expression to the deep things of god you know exactly therefore what it means don't you of course you do it means that god is so great god is so above us that we could never stand up to him to where we could ever have an equal personal peer-to-peer relationship with him we could never stand up to him in a way in which we would be so familiar so intimate to where we would know him like we would know someone we've been married you for 35 years or a child that we've raised their whole life when we say that god is deep we simply say he is way out of our league listen to how one theologian by the name of herman boving how he describes this very concept he writes this quote the moment we dare to speak about god the question arises how can we we are human, and he is the Lord our God. Between him and us, there seems to be no such kinship or communion as would enable us to name him truthfully. The distance between God and us is the gulf between the infinite and the finite, between eternity and time, between being and becoming, between the all and the nothing. God cannot fully impart himself to creatures. For that to be possible, they themselves would have to be divine. There is therefore no exhaustive knowledge of God. There is no name that makes his essence Known to us. There is no concept that fully encompasses him. There is no description that fully defines him. That which lies behind revelation is completely unknowable. We cannot approach it either by our thought, our imagination, or our language. What's he saying? He's saying by virtue of the fact that God is God and you are not, there will never be a moment where you can come to an understanding of God and say, aha, now I have him figured out. Now I know what makes him tick. Now I can anticipate what he is like. Now I know him like the back of my hand. No, no, no. That will never happen. God is so immense. He is so vast. He is so extreme. That you will never get a full picture, a full grasp, a full understanding about who he truly is. And just to give you a little sense of how crazy serious all of this is, read again at what it says in verse 8 and 9. It, the deep things of God, is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Now there is so much that we can say here. But because we're limited by time, let's confine ourselves to just the first and the last of the four realms this passage describes. The heavens and the sea. First, let's talk about the heavens. You guys know not too long ago that recently scientists have done an amazing feat. They took a picture of an actual black hole in a nearby galaxy right here. That is an actual black hole in the M87 galaxy that's approximately 57 million light years away. That's incredible. That's crazy. But you know what's even more incredible than this, as hard as it is to top this? The distance to the furthest galaxy known to man. Do you know what the furthest distance of the furthest galaxy is known to man? It's 13.3 billion light years away. That's even more crazy. And that's what we currently know. We don't even know if there might be even another galaxy further out than that. We have just scratched the surface of what is out there in the depths of the vastness of space. I mean, heck, 10 years ago, we just discovered another planet in our own solar system. Did you guys know that? 10 years ago, they discovered we have another planet in our very own home solar system. And yet, look at what our passage says in comparison to the deep things of God. He says the heavens, space, is nothing compared to the depths and the knowledge of God. But now let's move on to the second realm, the sea the sea. As of today, the National Association of Oceanic Association, the NOAA, they tell us that 95% of the oceans and 99% of the ocean floor have not yet even been explored. 95% of our oceans, 99% of the ocean floor haven't even been entered into. We have not even entered into these realms, even in our own home planet, even in our own oceans. We don't know the depths that are there. And yet again, what does our passage say? That the deep things of God are broader than the sea. Broader than the sea. What's my point? The point is this. God is incomprehensible. He's incomprehensible. And because he is incomprehensible, there will never be a moment ever, ever, where you could say that you know God fully. Now, notice what I didn't say. I did not say that you cannot know God at all. I simply said that you can never know God fully. There's a big difference between those two. In fact, I want to talk about what that difference is in my next point. But before we do, this passage of Scripture wants us first to recognize something very important so that when I tell you the difference between these two ideas, you can respond appropriately. And you're thinking, what? Let me explain by going to my next point. Why we refuse refuse to believe in the incomprehensibility of God read again with me verse 10 and 11 of our passage says if he passes through and imprisons and summons the court who can turn him back for he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity will he not consider it here again another set of questions but like the ones that came before they're not really questions rather it's making a statement in question form and what is this statement this time it's making about God in a nutshell it's simply this God is the judge God is the judge. He is the only one who summons the court, imprisons people, and considers iniquity. Considers iniquity. Verse 11, that word consider in the original Hebrew conveys this idea of an airtight investigation that is beyond a reasonable doubt, okay? This statement that these two questions are trying to convey is that God is the judge, and hence you and I are not. And what that practically means is is that when you and I are in a relationship with God, when man is, is in a relationship with God. God is the only one in that relationship who judges, and we never ever judge God, period. In this relationship between God and mankind, God is the only one in this relationship that judges us. We never judge God, period. Now, why is this passage going out of its way to make this point? Two reasons. Reason number one, it wants us to help us understand this difference between knowing God at all versus knowing God fully, okay? You see, even though it is true, God is incomprehensible. It does not mean that you cannot know God at all because the Bible does make clear to us That God reveals himself to creation. He reveals knowledge about himself to everyone, everywhere, to where no one can avoid it, no one can deny it, no one can escape it. The knowledge of God that's revealed to creation is something that everyone, everywhere knows about. Consider Psalm 19, we're starting in verse 1, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies display his handiwork. Day after day it speaks out. Night after night it reveals his greatness. There is no actual speech or word, nor is its voice literally heard, yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. Its words carry to the distant horizon. The fact that the Bible teaches and the fact that human culture verifies with the fact that there's so many religions since the beginning of human history... All of this tells us you can truly know God. As incomprehensible as he is, you can know it. But here's the qualification. You can never know him fully. You cannot know him comprehensibly because, again, he is incomprehensible. I heard one theologian put it this way. You can apprehend God, but you can never comprehend God. You can apprehend God, but you can never comprehend God. And you're like, okay, what, what's the difference? It sounds Almost identical. We'll consider this quote from the difference between .net website, which is a website that explains the difference between very similar things. It says this, quote, apprehension is described as the awareness or understanding of something by the mind. It is a mode of consciousness wherein the mind is only aware of the thing but does not affirm or deny anything about it. It is a mental state wherein we are conscious about something but fail to fully grasp its meaning to be able to pass any." judgment. Comprehension also means understanding, especially in the fields of education and psychology. Comprehension requires knowledge. It is a deeper form of understanding. It allows a person to connect bits and pieces of information in order to put it to use. For example, a person is able to comprehend a command or instruction if he knows what is expected of him and whether the command is legitimate or not, end quote. When you apprehend something, right, you know it but not enough to be able to judge it or to scrutinize it. But when you comprehend something, you know it deeply to where you are in a position to judge it, to evaluate it, to legitimize it, and even to rule over it. Now, applying all this to our knowledge of God, what does all this tell us? It tells us you can't apprehend God because God reveals himself to us. And you can know these things as true, but you can never comprehend God to where you can know him enough to where you could criticize him, you can evaluate him, you can scrutinize him, you could judge him, or even reject him on any rational basis. And that right there leads to the second reason why this passage is emphasizing God as judge. Because here's the heart of the matter. We do not want to accept this truth. There is something in the human heart that is so stubborn that it refuses to believe in this idea that God, if he exists, that he's incomprehensible. Because if it's true, that means we're never in a position to where we could judge him legitimately. And that really bothers a lot of people. In fact, the Bible says it bothers every human being. We cannot stand the idea that we could never criticize or judge God. Why? Consider these words from Charles Spurgeon. The great London preacher, when he writes, The contemplation of the divinity is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to the master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise. But he is like a wild ass colt and with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend to more humble the mind than thoughts of God. It's humility. Humility. That is the reason why we cannot accept that God is incomprehensible, and hence why we cannot judge him, because it would mean that we would have to be humble, which is simply another way of recognizing that we are nothing that we're not that big of a deal, that we are insignificant. And there is nothing that bothers every person that walks on this earth with the uh, understanding that they are insignificant. We hate this idea that we are insignificant so much that we will develop a mindset that is resistant to anything, not just God, but anything that we claim to be incomprehensible. Instead, we will carry this attitude that says, I can figure everything out. Nothing will get past me. I eventually will figure things out. I may not know it now, but if I work hard enough, I will figure it out. Everything is comprehensible to me. This is the mindset of modern man. And this is the attitude of modern science. And it's a very, very dangerous mindset. Why? Consider these very profound words from Jewish philosopher Abraham Heschel, he writes, to the modern man, everything seems calculable, everything reducible to a figure. He has supreme faith in statistics and abhors the idea of mystery. Obstinately he ignores the fact that we are all surrounded by things which we apprehend but cannot comprehend, that even reason itself is a mystery itself. He is sure of his ability to explain all mystery away. As a result, the awareness of grandeur and the sublime is all but gone from the modern mind. We teach children how to measure, how to weigh. We fail to teach them how to revere, how to sense wonder and awe. The sense for the sublime is now a rare gift, yet without it, the world becomes flat and the soul a vacuum, What is he saying? He's saying that our stubbornness And accepting the idea that we're insignificant comes at a great cost. And you know what that cost is? You lose the ability to have wonder. You lose the ability to be filled with awe. And as a result, the world becomes flat like a soda left out all day. And your soul becomes a vacuum like space that's cold. No warmth. No air to where you can't breathe. And you feel like you're suffocating. Okay. We lose the ability. In other words, life becomes absolutely stale and boring when you deny the existence of the incomprehensible all because you're so stubborn and not wanting to accept that you really are insignificant in light of the whole cosmos. And so now we're at a dilemma here. What's the worst situation to be in? To be bored or to be insignificant? What do you think? What is worse off? To be bored or to be insignificant, if you had to choose one over the other. A couple years ago, I came across an article on the Psychology Today website simply entitled Boredom. Listen to how it begins. Nothing in the world is quite so awful as boredom. Unmitigated pain, physical or emotional, is commonly viewed as giving rise to the worst kind of suffering. But the suffering engendered by true boredom, though qualitatively different, is perhaps in some ways just as terrible. Existential boredom defines an inability to find out not just particular things, but all of life interesting. It manifests itself as a mood in which for no reason you can articulate, nothing seems to satisfy. Even things that normally do. When you find yourself flipping from Internet site to Internet site, picking up a book, reading a few pages, and then putting it back down, walking around your apartment or house in search of something to do, but finding nothing to engage you. Though anhedonia the term psychiatrists use for the inability to derive pleasure from pleasurable activities remains one of the hallmarks of clinical depression it's entirely possible to experience anhedonia from another cause a belief that life is meaningless if you feel strongly there's no ultimate point to being here it's hard to feel purposeful about doing anything and it's hard if not impossible to be interested in something you feel has no purpose it's interesting the reason why I say it's interesting is usually when we think of boredom, we think it's a superficial problem, right? Oh, it's only something that spoiled people from the first world have. You know, spoiled people with first world problems. Boo-hoo-hoo, you, you're bored. But not so fast. I think it's actually something very telling. Because think about it. Here in the first world, we have resources. We have relationships. We have opportunities to where we can feel significant. And many of us do feel significant. Right? that many of our co-mankind in the third world don't get to feel. And yet, why are we more bored than they are? Why are we popping pills, killing ourselves, figurative, literally, even though we have all the things that we need to feel significant and even to be significant at times? Clearly, this is an indication that something is very sinister and much more dangerous and evil when it comes to boredom over Insignificance and indeed, science seems to be confirming this. Okay, Stephen Vandovich at the University of West Florida for 20 years has investigated the nature of boredom. And in his discovery of his studies, he said this that people who have chronic boredom suffer from a greater percentage of anxiety, depression, drug and alcohol addiction, anger, and aggressive behavior. And then another follow-up study done at the University of London has found that people who are chronically bored have 2.5 higher chances of dying from a heart-related disease. Heart-related disease. Putting all this together, what's the point? The point is, when you refuse to buy into this idea that God is incomprehensible because you want to hold on to this foolish idea that you're not insignificant, ironically, causes the whole world to become insignificant to you as a result, leading to your boredom. Isn't that interesting? Because we refuse to buy into the truth that we truly are insignificant, we don't accept an incomprehensible God. But by denying the fact that there is such a thing as the incomprehensible, the sublime, the wonder, we lose the ability to have wonder in anything. And as a result, life becomes stale. You feel meaningless because life itself has become meaningless. And so now we're left with a dilemma. What do we do about this? How do we overcome this seemingly inescapable cycle? The answer leads me to my final point, how we can believe in the incomprehensible God. Read again verse 12 with me. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. What? (laughs) It's like, what is this saying? And in fact, I read this in the original Hebrew. And it doesn't even make any more sense in the original Hebrew. And I read five different commentaries, academic, scholarly commentaries, and it didn't help because all five of them completely said different things from one another. And I'm like, what does this say? What is this saying? But if you consider what we've been saying up till now, I think you can figure out what verse 12 is saying. And let me share with you what I think verse 12 is saying. You see where it says that word stupid? That word in the original Hebrew means hollow, hollow. Now, when something is hollow, what characteristic does it have? It's weightless, right? You can pick up hollow things. It doesn't have much mass. And so it's easily movable, easily manipulated, tossed to and fro to where it's hard for it to stay in one place. Anything that is hollow is in danger of being pushed and prodded around because it has no solid foundation to keep it firmly rooted in one place. Hold on to that thought. As we move on to the other word in this verse, understanding. In the original Hebrew, it's the word heart. And it's not referring to an organ. It's actually referring to a belief that you have in your heart of hearts. A belief that you think is true and can never be wrong, can never be untrue, to a point that you're willing to die for because you know there is no way this thing that you believe, this understanding that you have, could ever be untrue. What do we call that? We call that conviction, right? where's conviction right we say it's right here do you have any heart do you have any conviction that's what it's talking about understanding conviction so when you combine these two ideas together what is verse 12 saying it's simply saying this is that what you know about god can never be something that you can be certain of what you know about god is something that you can never be certain of you can never have a certain level of conviction belief belief That is so unchangeable when it comes to what you know about God, because after all, he's incomprehensible. You don't know if there might be some situation, some qualification, some loophole where what's true about God in one situation may not be true of God in another situation. So you don't know. And just to really emphasize this point, the passage says that a donkey will give birth to a man before a person will be able to have any sort of conviction that what they know about God is always 100% true without fail. That's what verse 12 is saying. Here's the problem with that. It's absolutely wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And the reason why I know that is because of the person saying these words. Up till now, I have not identified the speaker of these words. But I'll tell you now, it's a young man by the name of Zophar. Zophar. And Zophar, up until verse 12, was spot on. Everything that he said in the verses prior to what we studied has been right on, theologically correct. But once he gets to verse 12, he just completely goes left field and goes crazy wrong with what he says. In fact, it is so wrong that God, later on in chapter 42, verse 7, gets angry at Zophar and says these words, I am angry with you, Zophar, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. God is angry. God is angry at what Zophar says here in verse 12. And so here's the question. What in the world did this guy say in verse 12 that really angered the Lord? The answer, what he says here in verse 12 denies the gospel, denies the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says even though we cannot know God fully, comprehensively, That does not mean that we cannot be certain of what we do know about him. Specifically, what he reveals to us in Jesus Christ. What does God tell us is the truth about him in Jesus? You know what he says? He loves you with an unchanging, forgiving, life-transforming, life-eternal love in Jesus. That's the truth. And even though we cannot verify it because it would require us to know everything there is to know about God just to make sure there is no qualifications, no loopholes to any of that, we don't need to know that because God gave us something as proof to where we can be certain of. What did he do? What did he do to give us certainty about that truth? Well, I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't cause a donkey to give birth to a man where one kind of creature gave birth to another kind of creature. No, he did something even more marvelous than that. He caused the creature to give birth to her creator. Mary gave birth to Jesus. When the Son of God came into the world as Jesus Christ, God was essentially saying, look, you will never be able to get certainty about what I'm saying to you in the gospel by first figuring everything out there is to know about me. But you can be just as certain by looking to what I say through my son Jesus. Right? Because of the fact this sign, this miraculous sign of how the Creator can be born by a creature, by a creature, right? that in itself is verification that you can have certainty beyond certainty that what the gospel says, I am for you. I am willing to forgive you if you're willing to repent. I'm always willing to accept you if you're willing to come back. And I'm willing to receive you and bless you as the benefits of my child if you cling to me and make my son Lord and Savior of your life. You can be certain because of the incarnation. That is what we are learning here today. Okay? That is what we see. Okay? All you need to do is believe this is true. Not because you still desperately want it because to the point where you're willing to die for it. No, but because Jesus was willing to die for it and he did die for it so that you could have that certainty. Because here's the fact of the matter. If you try to figure God out fully, you'll never get there. If you try to get to God and know the ins and outs of all these things just so that you can have certainty that what he says about himself to you in Jesus is true will never happen. That's why God coming to us in Jesus is why we can have hope and peace. And it is through accepting in God's love and mercy in Jesus that we can finally accept that God is incomprehensible. But more than that, we can also accept that we are insignificant. We can accept that we are insignificant. You know why? Because when we accept that we are so insignificant, it will position you to be in the best spot to fully experience The wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. We sing about it every Christmas, right? The wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. What is the wonders of his love? The wonders of his love is the most significant person ever, God, loves the most insignificant people ever. You and I. That is the wonder of his love. How ironic. By recognizing our insignificance, we come to see the significance of God's love for you, the wonder of his love. Here's my question. Have you been enraptured with wonder lately? Have you found God and his love for you filling you with marvel and awe? Or has it become stale? Has it become boring to you? I want to end this message with a couple of next steps for you to consider as a way of application first if you're here today investigating christianity and you feel that god is calling you to be in a relationship with him through his son jesus christ take this time right now accept christ recognize him as lord and savior by repenting of your sin make him the lord of your life the king of your life number two ask yourself do i truly believe in an incomprehensible god Do I truly believe in a God who is incomprehensible? One way you can answer this question is, am I persistently bored with life? Am I persistently bored with life? If the answer is yes, I am, right, it could be that you have resisted the idea of incomprehensibility because you are so stubborn in recognizing who you are in light of this incomprehensible God, that you are insignificant, okay? Another way you can answer this question is, have I lost the ability to be filled with wonder, Have you been sensing that life, the world, is just flat and stale to where the only thing keeping you going is fear, anxiety, superficial pleasures? If so, the likelihood is you don't believe in an incomprehensible God. If that is true, take this time this week. Read Psalm 8, one of the most marvelous psalms that talks about the majesty and wonder of God. Memorize it and meditate on it for the next few weeks praying that the spirit will revive your heart to be captured by god's incomprehensibility let's pray father we have one need that we cannot satisfy and that is we need for you to show how awesome and how marvelous you are father in this day and age where we scrutinize and judge everything before we validate it lord that has led us to a place where our view of life is so boring and so stale And we have lost the ability to be filled with awe and wonder. God, we're suffering because of it. We're filled with such a meaningless sense of existence. And we need you to capture us in such a way to where we cannot see you fully. We need to understand how beautiful and how sublime you truly are. God, we ask that you will do that now as we seek after you and as we seek to live out our faith before a watching world. Father, as your servant Chesterton once said, the world is in want of wonder, and we pray that we can give that wonder to the world by the way that we are enraptured by it. God, would you enable us to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of who you are in your person so that we can be filled with such joy and with such peace and with such hope and conviction so that we can truly be a blessing to the world. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.